This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. An epidemic called Beatlemania has seized the teenage population, especially female. These four boys from Liverpool with their dish mob hairstyles are Britain's latest musical and, in fact, sociological phenomenon. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! How would you define Beatlemania? I couldn't define it. You know, other people have tried. I'm, I'm not going to try. Leave it to the psychologists and let them get it wrong. Do you ever envision a time of uh, just ceasing being the Beatles and going off on your own? Or even working together? Just the we all, we the do Beatles. work on our own anyway now. You never can be anything else we than are the Beatles. We are the Beatles, that's what we are. But it came to a point I had to say something, of course, and well, what do you mean? And I said, I mean, I'm, uh, the group's over, I'm leaving. It's our responsibility for Vietnam and Biafra and Israel war and all the other wars that we don't quite hear about. It's all our responsibility, and when we all want peace, we'll get it. Whatever you do, just do it for peace. It's up to the people. You can't blame it on the government and say, they're doing this, they're, oh, they're going to put us into war. We put them there, and we allow it. You know, and we can change it. If we really want to change it, we can change it. Whatever gets you through the night. Apathy, isn't it? And that we can do something. Okay, so flower power didn't work, so what? We start again. War is over if you want it. Peace. Right on, brother. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. You may be thinking, well, today's not December the 8th, it's... that's Tuesday. Which is true, but this program is not on the air on Tuesday, which will mark, in fact, the official anniversary of the murder of John Lennon. Uh, So we're going to do it tonight for the full two hours. A special look at the mysterious life and death of John Lennon. And uh, in the second hour of the program, a fascinating gentleman will be joining us He has written a book after being a lifelong Beatle fan and studying their music. He's a bit of a musicologist in his own right. Joseph Nyasgata has written a book called The Lenin Prophecy, uh, New Revelations uh, about the the foreshadowing, I guess, of Lenin's death in his music and the Beatles' music. And it involves some numerology, etc. I'll lay it on the line for you. Uh, just so you know what to anticipate. Uh, Joseph Nyasgoda believes that after listening and studying his music, Lenin made a pact with the devil for fame and fortune. 
And I guess you could say that Mark David Chapman was sent to collect the bill. We'll uh, discuss that uh, with Joseph a little bit later in the program. And throughout the, uh, the following uh, two hours, we'll open up the lines and make them available to you at 416-360-0740. 1-866-744-740. That's toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas in Maine to Minnesota. 1-866-744-740. If you'd like to share some uh, thoughts on, uh, on John Lennon, if you have questions about his uh, early days in Liverpool, Hamburg, uh, the Beatles' uh, early days in America starting in 1964, all the way up uh, to his uh, life, of course, and uh, untimely death in New York. And then in the second hour, if you'd like to weigh in specifically on what Joseph Nyas Goda has to say about the foreshadowing in the music, uh, we'd welcome your uh, comments as well. First up, however, we could not, I could not fathom uh, doing a, a program about any rock and roll star, uh, really, John Lennon or Elvis or anyone else for that matter, without enrolling the, uh, the services of a, uh, a dear friend and uh, colleague. He is uh, a rock and roll investigator. How many people get to call themselves that? And... Uh, probably knows just about as much about the Beatles as anyone alive. He is the author of Hellhounds on Their Trail, Rock Legends, Myths, and uh, Curses, and uh, it's always a delight to have him on the program. This is his first time here on the uh, Conspiracy Show at AM740, our Gary Patterson. Hey, Gary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's great. It's great to be with you again. It's good to have you back. Uh, you know, it, it, it might be um, surprising for for for, uh, for some people to, to know. You know, there aren't there are a few Beatles uh, people out there who are not actually Beatle fans, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know how you can explain the impact or the importance of uh, Beatles music to someone who's simply not a Beatles fan. They uh, they lived it. They 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 listened to it. They it just didn't it didn't speak to them. Um, I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, this, their music uh, continues to, uh, to, to live 50 years later, and it's, it's still influencing people. Not many musicians uh, have that legacy. Well, that's true. You know, when I think back on the Beatles, I think of, first of all, starting the year 1959, and everybody's familiar with American Pie, in which Don McLean sings, The Day the Music Died. Well, in 1959, it was almost literally the year the music died, because in 59, Buddy Holly, the big bopper, Richie Valens, were dead in a plane crash. Chuck Berry was in prison. You had Little Richard, who had given up rock and roll to become a minister. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis had uh, destroyed his career by marrying his 13-year-old cousin. Elvis had been in the Army a few years before and was out of circulation, and Alan Freed, the man who even breathed life and gave the title rock and roll had uh, been destroyed by the payola scandals. And the music industry was very stale because what Buddy Holly had offered and everything that was new and exciting with Elvis and his son records was, was technically gone. And music changed to a number of teen idols, you know, the Fabians and all this. But when the Beatles hit, and this was in 63 in the United States, no one had heard anything quite like it, and they were marketed so well. I mean, 
by Brian Epstein, who had really no idea what he was doing when he came over because they lost millions of dollars in licensing. But it was the look, it was uh, the way they performed, it was their voices, and it was some incredible songwriting. And, of course, the Beatles, you know, they studied the Everly Brothers, so John and Paul would would sit in their rooms and they would uh, work on the harmonies that, uh, you know, the Everly Brothers did. And they loved Carole King and Jerry Coffin. And when they came to the United States, they asked them, they said, who's the first person you want to meet? And everybody assumed it'd be Dylan. They said, we'd love to meet Carole King and Jerry Coffin because we want to write songs like them. So their whole repertoire was based on the great songs of the Brill Building and the Age of Teen, and they mimicked that. And then they had a little country music that was thrown in because they loved Carl Perkins. But when they came, it was repackaged with a British accent, and the Beatles were really afraid to come to the United States because there had never been a British vocal band who ever had a number one chart in the United States. You had, well, let's see, you had the Tornadoes that had Telstar, but that was an instrumental group. And then there was the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands by a female singer from Great Britain, but the Beatles were the ones who shattered all records, and they were surprised when they landed. Before they left, George Harrison said, what do they need us for? Because all their heroes lived over here, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, all of it. And when they came, they were very well surprised at how well they went over. So uh, they created a following that defined music, and they continued to do it with uh, incredible recording techniques with uh, their songs and when the times changed it was changed by the Beatles all the way through Sgt. Pepper's and the very success that they created wound up destroying the band because they'd pushed the envelope as far as they could and to be honest Richard no one's pushed it further when you when you uh, listen to their first uh, commercial record please please me 1962 Mm -hmm. and a mere four years later with the the stuff that they were doing on the revolver album uh, oh, yes. Keeping in mind when you hear that, that's 1966, while other bands like Herman's Hermits and, and the Dave Clark Five, their recordings from 66 uh, sounded like the Beatles did about three or four years prior. They were already by that time light years ahead. I just, it, it boggles the mind. Let me remi- remind uh, listeners, R. Gary Patterson is with us, rock and roll investigator and uh, uh, author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and curses the uh, the website rgarrypatterson.com. How did they how did they do it? it? When you when you listen to the interviews with George Martin, he talks about how the Beatles were uh, their musicianship was not great in the beginning. Uh, they were they did not have a great stage presence when they were you know uh, getting their chops in in places like the Cavern Club and later in Hamburg. How did they turn it around? so quickly and uh, even the, the lyrics that they were writing in in uh, you know 62 63 64 they were doing a lot of covers still at that point mm-hmm. by the time 65 came around one might also almost get the idea like robert johnson they made a deal <laughs> with the devil mm. well you know what i think i think that brian epstein i had a lot to do with their performance because when they were in hamburg they were dressed all in leather, leather shirts, I mean, leather jackets, leather pants. They had the real tough teddy boy look at the time. So he takes them out, puts them in nice Pierre Cardin suits, and uh, makes them look very nice and presentable. And, of course, uh, Astrid Kirster with a beetle haircut was too suck that the others adopted. When it came back, it gave them something unique and original. But if you listen to their first demo tape, you're right, because they did a lot of covers. And if you listen to their first demo tape, you can understand why every record label in England turned them down. I mean, they did a cover, I remember, of uh, The Sheik of Araby, 
You know, that's not very exciting rock and roll. And Ain't She Sweet was another one. So right. they really didn't have the material. They were working on their chops. But then when George Martin noticed that someone had told him the guitar bands were on the way out, but when he heard the sound, you see, you know, that's a first-rate guitar player talking about George Harrison. So under his wing, he took him into EMI, and uh, he had some songs for him that were his songs. But when John and Paul told him that they were going to write their own, he said, well, then uh, write me something better. So they came in with uh, Love Me Do. And the song you mentioned, Please Please Me, that was a tribute to Roy Orbison. And they wanted to do it really slow, and George Martin said, why don't we speed it up? And if you listen to the production, that's George Martin. I don't know if the Beatles would have, if they had signed with Joe Meek, who was probably one of the top producers at that time, they would have probably not been as well put together as a package. They may have been like the honeycombs. And instead, George Martin had the genius to take them into the studio to get the sound, to encourage them. When they would go to the orchestra and they heard a certain instruments, they would bring it in, and George Martin would have it played on the records, and he would uh, play a lot of the parts himself. So I think that's the key, Epstein and Martin. All right. Gary uh, Stapwit will come back and discuss the, uh, the mysterious life and death of Beatle John Lennon, dead 29 years ago this coming Tuesday. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. My name is Richard Serrett. Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Our Gary Patterson is with us, a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll as we discuss the life and times of John Lennon. Gary's a, a published author with Simon & Schuster, and his works portray many fascinating events that helped shape musical history from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. And um, his uh, latest uh, work came out uh, a few years ago, actually, 2004, Take a Walk on the, Dar on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. But, of course, Gary's always collecting more tales for his next volume of uh, great rock and roll myths and legends. If you happen to have a great John Lennon anecdote uh, or uh, a myth or a legend or something that you'd like to know about, uh, give us a call. Uh, let's go back to... Um, I, I had a, an occasion to meet to, and speak with Pete Best. And uh, even though it's been uh, 40, almost 48 years since uh, they said goodbye to Pete Best and hello, Richard Starkey, he, he still seemed a little bit perplexed and bitter about the whole thing. And one of the stories that he tells is that uh, when, he, when they would go in, in, out on concert, or out on tour to play, uh, I guess, in Hamburg at the time, all the girls would flock to Pete Best because he was, by all accounts, a pretty good-looking fella, and he didn't have mm -hmm. the same sort of haircut that uh, the, the, the others did. 
And of course, later they would say, well, Pete wasn't a Beatle. That's how we had, that's why we had to get rid of him. He just didn't quite fit. But to hear his side of it is, he says, they were embarrassed because I was getting all the attention. Any truth to that? Well, you know, Pete Best told me the same story. <laughs> and this was in, let's see, Orlando, Florida, sometime maybe 1994, 1995. And uh, he was signing some photographs. This is before he wrote Drummed Out or, or whatever. But I was signing uh, copies of my first book, The Walrus Was Paul, All the Paul is Dead Rumors and the stories behind that. And so we were there for a weekend, and I asked Pete, I asked him, I said, you know, Pete, what was the story? I mean, why did why were you drummed out? And he goes, well, he said, I was a threat to Paul because all the girls called my name, and uh, they all wanted me. And so Paul didn't like that. And he said, John was very insecure with me because John was never really rock solid in what was going to happen in his life. He was always emotionally twisted. And he said, I was very, very well on my way to what I wanted, and I was very confident John didn't. So he said, they got rid of me and they got Ringo. And he said, look at Ringo, he wasn't a threat to Paul because he wasn't as good looking, and as far as uh, John goes, you know, he was more of a clown, so he wasn't a threat to John. And that's what Pete told me. Do you think there's any truth to that? I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there. I do know Bill Harry very well, who was with Mercy Beat. Well, next time I talk to him, I'll ask him. We'll find the, find out what Bill has to say. But, you know, there had to be something. I mean, maybe it was uh, creative differences. But, you know, the, the old rumor that Ringo was a much better drummer, when Ringo first went in the studio, uh, George Martin brought in a Sessions drummer on Love Me Do, and Ringo played tambourine, and then Ringo did cut I love me too. Well, there's and a, when the anthology came out with Pete's playing on it, I, I guess it does vindicate him as a decent drummer, and he did make money on that. So you don't have to feel too sorry for him because he's he's a millionaire now because of the anthology. So the Beatles did help him finally. I'm I'm glad because uh, me too. Yeah, yeah. That that to me is is uh, kind of a, a taints a little bit. Uh, of the legacy in, in the way that he was treated, but uh, I'm glad that they included his, his tracks in the anthology and he was able to make some money. But you mentioned uh, Ringo coming into the band, and I know we're focusing on Lennon tonight, but one of my favorite McCartney quotes, and maybe I heard it from you, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> someone asked McCartney whether Ringo Starr was um, uh, the greatest drummer, and he said he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, of course, because McCartney is a bit of a drummer, so... That's why uh, when they did the White Album, uh, Ringo was having a hard time getting the drum part to back in the USSR. And you can imagine coming into a band and, you know, being with these guys and, you know, being the, the toast of the world and coming in the next day after a session and find out that somebody had changed your drum parts and it really wasn't you on the tape. And it was McCartney. You know, he came in, he played the drum parts, and Ringo actually left the band. And if you notice the movie Let It Be, you'll notice that when Mal Evans is moving, setting the mics up, you have Ringo's drums, you have flowers all around it, because when Ringo came back, the Beatles put flowers around his drums. But McCartney used to also do the guitar solos for George Harrison, too. So, I mean, he was a... He was a, a bit of a son of a gun in his early days, wasn't he, McCartney? Kind of full of himself. But uh, I, I think he's certainly mellowed and, and, and maybe realized that uh, uh, he was kind of difficult to work with. But genius well, always was, is, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. If you watch the movie Let It Be, you can see an argument between uh, he and George Harrison over a guitar part. And George is putting his guitar in a case, and he says, well, it's your song, Paul. If you want me to play, I'll play. If you want, I won't play at all. And, you know, it was uh, supposed to be how the Beatles did this great creative magic in the studios, and Let It Be was actually the movie of the Beatles' breakup. You can see all the tension. It was a pretty, you know, pretty sad movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it seemed to be emanating, I think, mainly from, from Paul and the way he conducted himself. But let's get back to Lenin and, and back to the early days. And, um, okay. you know, uh, the man is, 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 is dead and gone, and some people say, why are you bringing this stuff up? But it is a fascinating chapter, and these rumors persist. And uh, uh, Lenin, by his own admission, had some pretty violent tendencies. And there is the rumor. Uh, you mentioned Stu Sutcliffe earlier, who was, um, I guess, a, a fellow art student with McCartney, really couldn't play. Uh, a lick, uh, but uh, had some uh, access to some money, so they brought him into the band uh, and uh, left the band in Hamburg to pursue to, uh, his art uh, career uh, and died shortly thereafter of a brain hemorrhage. There are those who who suspect that it was Lennon, in fact, who inflicted the injury upon Sutcliffe. Any, any truth to that? I think you're referring to Philip Norman in his book. Yes. He says that uh, Stu and and John got into a fight, and that John kicked him in the head. Is yes, that it? yes. And uh, there's another story that it was McCartney who kicked him in the head. Uh, I think both of those are, are pretty well disproven. I, I do know that there was a, an argument in a nightclub, and that uh, John always had this tendency of running his mouth off. And uh, when they met him outside, that the people John was offending, uh, they kicked but whatever it was, the cerebral hemorrhage that took Stu Sutcliffe away was a devastating thing for John Lennon because he and Sutcliffe were very, very good friends. As a matter of fact, it was Bill Harry who introduced Stu Sutcliffe to John Lennon, and John Lennon would not hear of kicking Sutcliffe out of the band, even though McCartney wanted him gone. And uh, so when they got to Hamburg and uh, Stu found Astrid Kirshner, fell in love with her, devoted his career to, to art, and the Beatles made it. And uh, they were devastated when they came back to Hamburg when they had, were starting to make it and find that Stu had died. And if you'll notice on the Sgt. Pepper's cover, uh, there's a figure that looks like James Dean. It's James Dean's body with Stu Sutcliffe's face because the, uh, John Lennon was convinced that Sutcliffe looked like James Dean one of their heroes, and he looked cool. So he just stood on stage, looked cool, holding his bass, and uh, that was good enough for John Lennon. There are other rumors that, that Lennon um, may have been involved in, a, um, uh, in some sort of a, a, a robbery of a pawn shop or something that went awry, and they ended up killing the shopkeeper. That, that rumor is out there as well. Oh, there's, there's many rumors, but, I mean, there's not anything to substantiate it. I mean, uh, it's the sad thing about being famous in rock and roll is that after you die, there's so many things that come up, like Jim Morrison had killed someone when he was hitchhiking, and that was part of Riders on the Storm. And, I mean, you have these, but this is what makes urban legends go, you know, uh, is always new material to go through it and to create the legend and keep it going. Our Gary Patterson is uh, with us, the uh, author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and uh, Curses. Uh, I, um, I need to take a break here, but when we come back, I, I want to delve into um, uh, some other uh, interesting chapters in, in Lennon's life, including uh, okay. his time in New York. Uh, okay. where, and he's talked openly about this in interviews, where um, he had a couple of UFO sightings. We'll get to that a little bit later as well, as we... Uh, Mark the 29th anniversary of the uh, death, murder of John Lennon. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. A little bit later in the program, the author of The Lennon Prophecy, a new examination of the death clues of the Beatles. 
Joseph Nyasgoda will be on the program. Right now, our Gary Patterson is with us. He is the uh, Fox Mulder of rock and roll, and uh, his uh, books include The Walrus Was Paul and um, his uh, latest, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, which is uh, a re-release of his second work, really, Hellhounds on Their Trail. And uh, we are, of course, talking about uh, the life and death of John Lennon, 29 years ago this coming Tuesday. Uh, His time in New York. And um, there are, in fact, uh, on my website, uh, richardserrett.com, you can click on uh, Lennon's FBI files. I believe uh, between 1971 and I'm not sure exactly when they closed the file, but J. Edgar Hoover... Uh, I guess under the direction of Richard Nixon, was uh, uh, having Lenin's uh, phone lines tapped and he was uh, being uh, uh, trailed uh, by FBI agents. And it was very difficult. Uh, Lenin uh, tried to get his American citizenship and was uh, finally able to do so, I think, in about 1975. Uh, But what was it that the, uh, the FBI, and in particular Nixon, feared? Uh, from John Lennon, and and uh, how paranoid was Lennon during this time? Well, you know, you have to think about this. When uh, the Beatles' last album came out in 1970, you go to 1971, and that was the year that Lennon and Yoko came to the United States. When their plane lands, they're met by some of the most radical movement in the United States, like uh, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and obviously that got the FBI's attention. And look how powerful as a pop culture icon, John Lennon was. When you talk about the counterculture at the time, you know, you had Jimi Hendrix, who was dead, and uh, you had uh, Janis Joplin, who died two weeks later, and you had Jim Morrison, who had died. So with their deaths, John Lennon was the most focal point. But what bothered Nixon, and this is what I think, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure, but... You know, what gets me when I think about this, when Lennon does his album somewhere in New York City, which is basically his most radical album, and of course he had his song John Sinclair, but that was his most radical stage. What was due to happen in 1972 in American politics was uh, an incredible thought, because for the first time ever, 18-year-olds would be allowed to vote. And when you have millions of 18-year-old voters going to the polls, and John Lennon was to come out, and he was to endorse a certain platform, how many people would be swayed by Lenin? And that was a threat to Nixon, because uh, he, he was too powerful to ignore. And when he came over, there were a number of tricks, FBI, you know, CIA involvement. I, I remember a story in which uh, John was recording, and he saw a card. He actually sent some coffee or something out to the agents who were watching him. His phone was tapped. Uh, deportation over drug laws in uh, Great Britain, anything they could do to get rid of him. And when Jimmy Carter became president, he, he stopped all that. And Lennon was allowed to stay here. But I think that if you look at it in 1972 with the first times that 18-year-olds could vote, I think that was uh, a very big threat to Richard Nixon. What do you think? Uh, knowing the way that uh, Nixon uh, played the game, uh, I, 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 I would, uh, I can't imagine him not doing something like that, quite frankly. And, right. uh, let's, let's face it, the, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover played it fast and loose pretty, uh, pretty much when it came to civil liberties and things like that. 
Uh, so yeah, it, you know, it's, Richard, it's almost like to say who didn't the FBI have a file on exactly in 1972. Exactly. I guess the big question in many people's minds is is whether um, perhaps you know with Lenin's reemergence in the late 70s, early 80s, and in fact the day after he uh, he uh, was was killed, he was to fly, I believe, to San Francisco to uh, to address uh, some sort of a rally, and that was to mark sort of his reemergence into the. Uh, into into politics and and becoming uh, active again, uh, the big question remains as to whether uh, they opened up those files and 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 decided to uh, uh, per- perhaps take uh, more extreme measures. We can talk about that a little bit later. But I I, I want to uh, uh, talk about his uh, Lenin's reported UFO sightings. I believe there were two, if I'm not mistaken. One outside a, a, an apartment that that he and uh, Yoko had. Uh, I'm not sure if it was in in the village, uh, and then there was the other one. Of course, uh, I think it was at the Dakota. What can you tell us about uh, his his experiences with UFOs? Well, uh, actually, it happened on the 23rd of August, of 1974, and the apartment he had was uh, apartment number 434, which was on East 52nd Street. It wasn't at the Dakota, and he was with May Pang at the time. And the story goes that he got out of the shower, and he saw this bright light in the sky so he goes out completely naked standing out on his balcony and he observes this ufo so he yells for may pang and she comes out she sees it and when it started to take off he yelled wait come back take me with you well uh uri geller has another story and he says that in the late 70s that he and john were talking and john had told him about the first UFO story. Matter of fact, John was kind of worried, what will I do? If I call the police and tell them, hey, look, my name's John Lennon, I saw a UFO, I mean, he thought that would be you know, a pretty terrible thing. So when his Walls and Bridges album came out, he wrote on the back of it, on, a tw- on 23rd August 1974, I saw a UFO, JL, and it's written on the album. But Uri Geller says that uh, John took him aside, and he said, I've never told this to anyone else. But he said, one night I was sleeping in the Dakota next to Yoko, and he saw, I saw this bright light come under the door, and he thought it was like someone had a spotlight in, my, in the apartment. So he opened the door, and he said he saw four beings, all right, four alien beings. And at first he said they were insect-like, and he tried to almost step on them. But two reached by the hands, and, and two took him, and they, they took him into a light. And he said in the light he could see his whole life. And he said it was one of the most peaceful experiences he had seen. And he said then he went back into his room, went back into bed. He told Yoko about it the next morning, and in his hand he had this strange piece of metal that looked like a metal egg. And he said he never figured out what that was. He said I, he didn't know if that was a pass to write on a UFO or, or whatever, but he gave it to Uri Geller. And Uri Geller uh, told the story, I forget how long ago, but uh, you have the story of the sighting of a UFO, and then you have the one where he actually had a close encounter and was given an object. So Uri Geller's the guy to talk to on that one. But uh, those are the two stories I know about UFOs and John, and I know that you know, he was fascinated. Anything with the paranormal, anything on Far Eastern religions, anything about mysteries, and even Christianity. So he was, he was into it all, and he, he was very well read. The... Um the the uh, rumored uh, reunion between uh, McCartney and Lennon at the Dakota in the mid seventies, uh, McCartney supposedly showing up at Lennon's doorstep uh, unannounced, uninvited, and uh, I think we're led to believe that things had were still a little frosty between the two of them. 
they're sitting there in the living room, and uh, Lennon's somewhat annoyed because he's got uh, his, his, his young son, Sean, to take care of. And uh, McCartney comes uh, along with his guitar in tow. And they're sitting there watching Saturday Night Live, and uh, they watch Lorne Michaels, the producer, announce that uh, if the Beatles were to appear on his show, he'd pay them scale, and he basically he would turn the, the entire evening uh, evening's program over to them. And the rumor, of course, is that Lennon and McCartney thought about getting into a cab and going down to Rockefeller Center and actually appearing on the show. And there was a made-for-TV movie about this as well. Is it apocryphal, yeah. or did it actually happen that way? Well, McCartney claims it happened. And uh, also, I think George Harrison was on that night. And he was on. and With Paul Simon, I think. Where Lauren Michaels said, no, George, I can't give you the money. It has to be all the Beatles, $10,000 and something. So they said, well, let's go down. And they couldn't get a cab. But you talk about a a strange event in music history if they had walked in that night. I mean, (laughs) that would have been one of the greatest moments in television that would probably rival what happened on February 9th, 1964, on the Ed Sullivan Show. It was that close? They simply couldn't get a cab? very, Very interesting. It, that's all. It, that's all. That, they couldn't get a cab. That's the only thing that that uh, prevented a reunion of the Beatles. Well, you got to remember, Ringo wouldn't have been there, so I'm sure they wouldn't have paid him the ten thousand ah. dollars because they had to be all four Beatles. Okay. That was the stipulation. But they were that close. They were that close, and if you remember when Live Aid came on, I remember Dick Clark was saying, "No one leave your television set. This is going to be a memorable moment," and. It ended with Paul McCartney coming out and playing Hey Jude and something on piano, but what they originally had planned, according to the rumors, was that George Harrison, Ringo, and Paul were all there, and they were going to walk on stage, and they were going to perform together, and it was going to be for this great cause. But Ringo was afraid that his, his chops were down. He, wasn't, you know, he didn't think he could, he could play that well, and George was terrified about what had happened to John, and he was afraid maybe he may be shot. So they backed out at the end, and McCartney, McCartney was disgruntled, and he went out, and he, he performed at the end. But that was the rumor on what was supposed to happen the last, the last few minutes of the uh, concert. So that would have been another great moment. So there's a lot of great legends that are going around. McCartney uh, is, um, well, let's, uh, let's face it, he, is, he has had, in the past at least, a reputation for sort of rewriting Beatles history. <laughs> and exactly. uh, it's often said that the only one that you can get the, the, the straight goods from is Ringo because he, he was never alienated from anybody. Everyone seemed to get along with Ringo. But, but Lennon, or McCartney now insists that the things between him and Lennon in the final years were, were fine. They were great pals again. And, uh, and he says, and thank God for that because, of course, you know, he would, it would have been horrible if, they had, if, if Lennon had died and they had not uh, reconnected. But to what extent is that true? Because you hear a, a, an entirely different side from others that uh, that there was that reunion in the, in the mid-70s where they almost went on Saturday Night Live. But aside from that and a few phone calls and they were, they were cordial, they never really did patch things up the way McCartney insisted they did. I think they were warmer. I think that at the end, I like to think that too. I know that McCartney, when he was in uh, New York, he'd show up with his guitar at the Dakota, and one, one time John Isley told him, he said, Paul, this isn't Liverpool. He said, you know, you just don't come over. You have to call. And that was pretty bad. But I've got this story I want to tell you. Uh, are you familiar with who Carl Perkins is? Of course, yeah. Okay, Blue Suede Cheese? Yes. Well, you know the Beatles loved him. Harrison was at his funeral, yeah. And uh, exactly, George even sang a song. And... Uh, I met Carl 
in Nashville, Tennessee in 1996. I signed uh, The Walrus's Fall for him, and he signed a copy of his book, Go Cat Go, for me. And I got to talk to him for a whole week, and he told me a story that uh, he had gone to record Tug of War with McCartney. And they recorded the album, and he just uh, took some time, and he started writing his own song, and he had a song called My Old Friend. So he sang it for, for Paul, and when he sang it to him, he said Paul just looked at him like somebody had shocked him and, or slapped him across the face. And, and he said, oh, my gosh, I, I hope I haven't offended you in some way. He said, no, no, Carl, wait, wait. He said, I have to go get Linda. So he goes and gets Linda, and he says, now sing it for her. And there was a chorus that said, my old friend, think about me every now and then. And Linda and Paul were sitting down, and every time he sang that line, he said they looked at each other, and Paul had tears running out of his face. He gets up, and he leaves the room. And Linda comes up to Carl, and she says, Carl, how did you know? And he says, well, what do you mean? I didn't mean to upset him. What should I know? And she said, how did you know, Carl? She said, the last time that Paul saw John, as John walked into the Dakota, he turned back to, to Paul and said, hey, old friend, think about me every now and then. The exact line to the court. My, my. Seems to, seems to think that somehow or another that John had reached through him to give that message to Paul. There's, that is a great story. That is a great story, and you're only going to get that from listening to our Gary Patterson. That's why we have him on. The author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses, back with more with our Gary and yours truly, Richard Serrett. Listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Coming up in about 20 minutes' time, The Lenin Prophecy, a new examination of the death clues of the Beatles. There is some interesting foreshadowing in the music uh, of the, uh, the Beatles and of Lenin. Uh, about his own death, but uh, even aside from the music, some interesting things. Uh, going back to um, Lennon's uh, life at the Dakota, and uh, I remember uh, the uh, the final interview he did, was it for RKO, uh, I believe, uh, Gary, and uh, during the interview, you actually hear a gunshot, and Lennon makes some quip about... Uh, I, I can't remember what he said, but there was, and this, keep in mind, this interview happened just hours before he, he left for the, 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 um, the, uh, the recording studio and, and came back and, of course, w- was shot dead. Do you remember that, um, that snippet uh, in the interview when the gunshot happened? Or am I imagining yeah, things? Yeah, actually, it was also in the Playboy interviews, the last interview. And uh, a gunshot, it sounds like a gunshot, and Lennon says, oh, another murder at the Rue Dakota. That's what he said. Ah, the Rue Dakota. And what's kind of interesting, though, is that the Dakota had a 99-year history. It was built in 1881. And, of course, you know, many times you and I have talked about the number nine with John Lennon. But in its 99 history, there was never a murder except for John Lennon's. So when he said another murder at the Rue Dakota, then he was wrong because he would be the first murder. Boris Karloff died at the Dakota. 
and was taken out through the Undertaker Gate, but not on 72nd Street. So that's what's really strange. And, of course, the Dakotas where Rosemary's Baby was filmed, you know, some of the segments from it. And if you remember the scene in the movie Rosemary's Baby, there's a, a scene where the actress who's originally chosen to be the mother of the Antichrist has uh, jumped from her window and her body's laying on the street. And what's odd is that's the exact passageway where Lennon was murdered. And so sometimes the gift that keeps on giving, I guess, when it goes with it, on the dark side. Yes, yes. Um, Mark David Chapman, uh, to your mind, uh, in your mind, he, he um, was just a, a crazed, mentally ill, perhaps, uh, lone gunman? Well, you know, if you study Chapman, even since he was a child, he uh, commanded what he called the little people in his room. And uh, he had these violent outbursts. And, you know, he, he seemed to be psychologically unstable. I know that one of the issues was that he really loved the Beatles and would listen to their music and just was really into it. And so much that he almost mimicked the life of John Lennon. He got the pair of, of little gold rim glasses, circular glasses like Lennon wore. He married a Japanese woman, you know, or oriental, oriental woman, and uh, even signed his name John Lennon. And when he heard Imagine, and he heard that Lennon had changed, and of course uh, Chapman had gone into a, a very strict religious background at the time, and when in the song Imagine, where it says, Imagine there's no heaven, uh, Chapman would sing, Imagine there's no John Lennon. And then, of course, The Catcher in the Rye, uh, where he thought he was holding Caulfield, and he, outli- he lived uh, the, the Caulfield story in New York City, just like the book. And oddly enough... Uh, you know, when he kills Lennon, he stands there and uh, he says, this is my testament, this is, you know, this is my story, The Catcher in the Rye. And I think he, he meant, if you're familiar with The Catcher in the Rye, it's a story where Holden Caulfield thinks he's saving these children from falling off the edge of a cliff. And so he was uh, saving innocence from the corruption of John Lennon and the music, which is, which is very strange. And, and uh, you know, the idea that he was a Manchurian candidate, that uh, the catcher in the rye was a trigger for him to go out and kill Lennon, like uh, the Queen of Hearts, I think, in the movie The Manchurian Candidate, right. that, that would do that. I think that you'd have to take a look at 1980. I think that, you know, if this happened in 1972, it would be a lot more plausible, uh, because that would be the way to, to rid yourself of this great radical, the counterculture. But in 1980, from John Sinclair and and all of this, John Lennon's writing about watching the wheels go around and uh, watching his son grow. And not very radical at all. No, in but fact, say, sorry, I was just going to say, in, in fact, uh, I, I remember a, um, an interview he did on Monday Night Football with Howard Cassell. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was Cassell who announced his death to, to, to many people. That's how we found out about it. But uh, exactly. I, uh, it might have been six months prior, he was uh, attending a football game, and uh, Cosell interviewed him, and he actually commented that he liked Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So it seems unlikely that even though Reagan was a Republican, uh, and, and Lenin was said to reemerge sort of on the political stage, that uh, uh, you know, Reagan would have, had, had, uh, would have ordered him uh, shot dead. Well, obviously, it wouldn't have been Reagan. Uh, you know, you, all through rock and roll history, you have uh, legends and stories of these uh, anti-American groups started and funded by the CIA. And if you had the Iran-Contra affair that was coming up where you had money that was diverted, then maybe you had some sort of organization that took care of those members of the counterculture. I mean, there's, 
there's rumors on Hendrix's death, on Joplin's, on uh, Brian Jones, on Jimi Hendrix. I mean, all of this. I mean, even Hendrix and Jones's death now are being reinvestigated. I mean, there's not anything that I find new. But if you take a look at Jimi Hendrix, it's interesting, Richard, because I've always, I've often wondered this. Uh, when they took his body to the hospital, they said that his lungs were oozing this red wine. Okay, but when they did the alcohol level test in his blood. It was below legal intoxication. In other so words, they forced the, all that wine unless it was forced his down his yes, and not be in his blood unless he was drowned with it. Exactly. And there's a new book that's come out that says that's exactly what happened. And uh, so I it mean, sounds like you're saying it. It sounds like you're saying it is possible. Then, well, it, you know, it wouldn't have been Reagan who would have given the order. Some, some, uh, someone in the, some branch of the CIA perhaps, realizing Lenin was about to uh, uh, to become political again, um, may have taken it upon himself. It's, it's, it's possible, I suppose, but uh, well, as you, you know, said... The word possible exists in a very large frame, but if you remember when Jimmy Carter was president of the United States, the CIA had become a kinder, gentler organization. There were no political assassinations uh, allowed. There was, you know, they had to become much milder. So with the end of the Carter's administration, who knows? I mean, I'm saying you can't say with any certainty that it wasn't. But, you know, it's just like the movie Conspiracy Theory. I mean, we have this thing of lone, guns, uh, lone gunman. And, I mean, Chapman fit the profile. I mean, he, he wanted to kill Lenin because it, it would make him famous. Just like Charles J. Gateau, who killed Garfield, and spent the day of the murder looking for the proper pistol that would be put in a museum. So, you know, you gain glory by your victims. And, I mean, it, it does fit that. But it also seems like so many people digging for the truth, and there's so many FBI documents that are blacked out. And, I mean, who knows for sure if we'll ever know. But I'm just saying that uh, when you take a look at the Cold War and you go through this, and I'm sure there are a number of people within the government who would have an opportunity to divert some funding and and look at it as an attempt to save their political environment. So who knows? Well, the uh, the uh, the final point on on, on this, and uh, and we can wrap things up, is that the my understanding is that the the doorman on duty at the Dakota that day was a former CIA asset uh, by the name of Jose Perdomo, and uh, Perdomo was uh, I think involved in the Bay of Pigs uh, incident, which is of course well storied, uh, and. It's just it's interesting that uh, of you know of all the people to be in charge of uh, security uh, or or working at the Dakota that day would be a, would be a, a former CIA asset and it didn't even get reported widely in the in the media uh, that Perdomo was in fact on duty that night until somebody um, uh, did some digging and, and and found this out. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, but I will say this, you know, when we take a look at coincidences, I think a coincidence is just waiting for an explanation. So, you know, if he was there, a member of the CIA with, uh, you know, the, the revamping of the CIA in the 1980s, uh, I mean, you, you can't say, you can't just restrict it and say it was not possible. I mean, anything can be possible. It's, it's just not what we're told. I mean, even in Hendrix's death, I mean, I always thought it was odd that everyone who was near Hendrix is dead. I mean, Devon Wilson takes a swine dive off the Hotel Chelsea. Monica Daneman, who told the story that she was with him, uh, takes a 
vacuum hose, puts it on her muffler, uh, dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, Noel Redding always believed that Hendrix had been murdered. And, you know, a lot of the idea that maybe the CIA, anything was with that, because, you know, Hendrix was involved with the Black Panthers, and it was a deadly time. In America, it was a social, it was probably the greatest social revolution since the one in 1776. So when you're taking care of the, of the counterculture, Lenin was the last one. And in 1980, there were none. All right. Uh, back a few more moments remain with uh, our Gary Patterson as we discuss the life and times of uh, John Lennon. In fact, we may uh, get uh, Gary to stick around and uh, join us as we discuss the Lennon prophecy. Hope you'll stay with us as well. And join in. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Next week on the program, that's Sunday, December 13th, we'll talk about teleportation and time travel. I'll speak with a lawyer and whistleblower who will discuss his experience within a secret DARPA program called Project Pegasus and what he claims to be the true history of U.S. time travel research and teleportation technology. Right now, we're, we're discussing the life and times and uh, untimely death of John Lennon. Our Gary Patterson is uh, with us. Uh, Gary, did you want to uh, stay with us after we uh, welcome uh, Joseph Nias go to aboard and talk about the Lennon prophecy? Well, yeah, I think that'd be fun. I'd love, I'd to, love to hear it. And I'd love to get your insights as well as he talks about some of the foreshadowing in the music. Nobody knows the music. <laughs> Uh, better than you, and uh, be fun. let me ask you uh, before we finish up this hour. Uh, I, I know that you're constantly uh, looking for uh, you know great tales for your next volume of, uh, mm-hmm. of rock and roll myths and legends. Yeah, any plans for uh, for the release of that that the next book? Well, actually, I'm working on three right now. <laughs> Is that all? You're slacking well, yeah, off. I guess I've, <laughs> I've been away for a while. I was uh, spending a lot of time in you know, working on television and some projects out in Hollywood, but I thought, well, you know, I need to get back to this. And I've, what I do is I'm, I'm in massive research right now. I know that I've got the sequel pretty well in my head. I intend to write it this summer, and uh, so I have more time and, uh, and get it done, and I'll make my agent happy, and I uh, <laughs> can go out and, and we'll get it going. But I've got some great stories, Richard, I, and when it comes out, I, I definitely want to be one of the first guests on it, but... You know, it's it's probably more terrifying than my last one. You know, some of the stories are are really you know, really strange, and uh, of course I enjoy that. I enjoy anything that's a little different, anything that makes you look at something twice. And uh, I think that's what I'll enjoy about the next hour. It'll be fun. If you uh, were able to uh, to interview John Lennon, uh, let's say you were doing the interview back on December eighth, nineteen eighty. What would what would you have asked him? Perhaps that maybe no one else would have asked him. Oh my gosh! I mean, when you think about everything that's been done, I think you know one of the things I would probably ask was uh, you know like the development of uh, of a lot of his ideas. You know because uh, he was so well read. I mean, with Lewis Carroll and Finnegan's Wake and James Joyce and all this. I mean. Uh, just the wordplay, the structure. I mean, it, it's just great poetry, you know, and see some of the influences. And uh, But then again, I'd probably ask him, you know, if he had a chance to get back with McCartney, not as a performing group with the Beatles, you know. I feel like they, they gave each other a, 
a much needed boost in their music. I mean, both of them had very successful solo careers, but just the magic seemed to be gone. So I was just curious how the magic would get back, if there could be, you know, if they could just overlook certain little things and get back and compose. Maybe that's the selfish side of me, that I'd like to hear something like that. But, you know, a lot of his things are all laid out, you know, his beliefs. And, uh, you know, obviously he was a person who uh, wanted answers, and he was disappointed a great deal. And he, he went through everything. But, uh, you know, needed some stability. Maybe that's what McCartney was. I'd ask him if McCartney really was that stability, you know, that, in his creative side. McCartney was recently asked, uh, and he's been asked this question many, many times, and his answers have sort of evolved with the passage of time, and uh, um, that is whether he thinks that had Lennon lived, that, 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 uh, that the Beatles would have gotten back together. And McCartney's answer was, well, John was always a little bit nervous about that. Uh, but he said, "Who knows?" He, he he sort of mellowed over time as well. Do you think then that that uh, uh, they 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 would have reformed? I think that one thing about it is that you can never really go home again, and I don't think they could have ever lived up to what everyone would have expected. And if you remember, they were offered—I forget how many millions of dollars—to perform on the 20th anniversary of uh, the Shea Stadium concert by Sid Bernstein, and they turned it down, and George Harrison said, we can't be the Beatles as long as John is dead. So, you know, just the idea, I think that it would have been a terrible thing for him to live up to, because they could have never been as good as we'd wanted them to be. All right. That's why John was a little upset. Let's um, take a quick time out. We'll come back, and uh, our Gary Patterson is going to stay with us, and I'm excited about that, and uh, also my next guest. Joseph Nyasgoda, the author of The Lennon Prophecy, a new examination of the death clues of the Beatles. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Our old our society is run by insane people for insane objects, mm. objectives. You know, but I'm liable to be put away as insane for expressing that. You know, that's what's insane about it. And nobody knows all these people in the street, and uh, half the people watching this are going to be saying, oh, what's he saying, what's he saying? You know, that you are being run by people who are insane, and you don't know. Do you think that they are kind of picking on each other? Oh, yeah, they picked on me, I'm telling you. When, when it first started, I was followed in a car, and my phone was tapped, and I think they wanted me to know to scare me, and I was scared, paranoid. I can't prove it, you know. I just know there's a lot, of, a lot of repairs going on in the cellar. I know the difference between the phone being normal when I pick it up and when every time I pick it up there's a lot of noises, you know. And I'd open the door and there'd be guys standing on the other side of the street. I'd get in the car and they'd be following me in a car and not hiding. That's why I got a bit paranoid as well. They, they wanted me to see I was being followed, you know. Suddenly I realized this was serious, you know. They were coming for me one way or the other. John said to me at one point, um, if anything happens to Yoko and me, it was not an accident. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. December 8th, 1980, I was at a childhood, friend, a childhood friend's home uh, in Brantford, and uh, I'm 46. I came uh, to, uh, to appreciate uh, the Beatles uh, fairly late, uh, actually, in life. I was 16, really, when I, or 15, when I um, sort of got into the music of John Lennon, 
and this is a true story. I was at Tom Balin's home. We were listening to uh, Beatles albums all night. The TV was on in the uh, the basement, and it was Monday night football game, but we had the sound turned down because, again, we were listening to the Beatles music. And, of course, we're watching the um, the game. I believe it was the uh, Miami Dolphins versus the New England Patriots, and we did not hear Howard Cosell's announcement that uh, uh, Lennon was shot uh, in the back, taken to Roosevelt Hospital, pronounced uh, dead on arrival. And uh, I walked home from Tom Balin's house uh, feeling very good, you know, excited, uh, listening, uh, and, and the Beatles songs, of course, still playing in my head on the way home, and not realizing, of course, that uh, uh, he was laying in a slab uh, in uh, New York City. All right. This uh, it promises to be a very interesting hour because my next guest is offering a, a very interesting and controversial interpretation of the hidden messages and symbols that have ornamented Beatles mythology for years and offers the view that John Lennon joined historical figures such as Mississippi Crossroads blues guitarist Robert Johnson, Dr. Johann Faust, Pope Sylvester, among others, who entered into a pact with the devil to exchange their souls for earthly successes. Joseph Niasgoda, has uh, been a lifelong uh, Beatles fan, a collector, and a scholar. He researched John Lennon and the band for more than 25 years. He works in analog and digital music recording and has an extensive background in music theory. He is the author of The Lennon Prophecy, a new examination of the death clues of the Beatles. Joseph, welcome to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Hi, Gary. And uh, yes, I hey, wanted Joe, to. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Wanted to mention that uh, Gary was um, kind enough to hang around, and um, we're we're grateful that he um, he is because he he's going to offer some um, interesting insights. We know, uh, Joseph. When did this sort of connect for you? Uh, as you say, you 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 studied the Beatles and were a lifelong Beatle fan. When did you start to connect the dots and realize that? that in your mind and your research revealed that John Lennon had made a deal with the devil and that this this was all revealed through the um, not only uh, photographic evidence but in their music when did you when was that aha moment for you well i think the exact moment in time was a few days after john lennon had died and like i say i'm a first generation beatle fan and always followed the beatles careers was fascinated by the paul mccartney death clues so i always had that you know, as a background to my life, those Beatles, the death clues, that whole aspect of it. Well, shortly after uh, John Lennon died and we learned the name of Mark David Chapman, I was going through all of my Beatles material material once again, and I was paging through the Magical Mystery Tour album. And in the Magical Mystery Tour album is an insert. I say paging through. There's a booklet inside. And I was paging through, and I came across a picture of John Lennon taken in 1967, and it has John coming out of uh, a ticket agency. And in the background, it says, the best way to go is by MDC. Now, when I saw that, I say, all right, the best way to go is by MDC. And it turns out to be a, 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 you know, a, a, a prophecy in as much as the best way to go is by MDC, Mark David Chapman, the guy who murdered John Lennon. And that was the first clue that, directed me or pointed me um, towards John Lennon. There were always these underlying um, 
dark side of Beatles, people had sensed something but couldn't quite explain it. They called it the Paul McCartney death clues. This is what had me pointing the clues that existed about Paul in the John Lennon's direction. And, uh, I mean, not only uh, you, uh, you point out in the book the uh, some interesting photographic evidence, of course, uh, a picture of the Beatles that had just arrived in, in, uh, in New York in 1964. There they are in Central Park, and on the horizon, of course, they're almost standing in the shadow of the Dakota building. Um, but what about... Isn't that, isn't that an odd picture, you know? It is, it is. And, I, and that's why I say people say to me, who've known me, my family members and friends... You know, I don't know where that's ever been recorded, where anyone else besides me has noticed that. Now, Gary's picked up on some very strange things. In fact, I even use Gary's book um, as a reference to my book. It's very awkward that no one else picks up on this stuff. I don't get it. Why do you suppose that is, uh, Gary? Do you have any thoughts? Well, uh, I'm a first-generation Beatle fan as well, and I remember when it happened, and I remember that when the Paul's Dead Rumors came out, I was the perfect age. I was a little older, but I was a senior in high school, just ready to go into college. And uh, when it happened, I was there when the first wave happened. I want to po- uh, point something else out to Joe. The picture he's talking about where, he's, where John's standing by the sign, best way to go is BMDC, which a lot of people thought in the Paul's Dead Rumors was M&D Coach or M&D Company. Right. Uh, Joe, did you know that the Magical Mystery Tour album was released on December 8, 1967, 13 years to the day that John Lennon was murdered? Yeah, isn't that odd? I know. Very odd. The the uh, the actual song, uh, Magical Mystery Tour, um, or perhaps it's, uh, yeah, I believe it's Magical Mystery Tour. Aren't there some, some de- interesting death clues in, in, in there as well? There's a bit of a uh, kind of a sound collage, and uh, mm-hmm. do we hear sort of police, police sirens and things like that? Can you walk us through that? Well, I don't know any specific. I didn't really go delve into that particular song. Um, uh, Gary may have something on that, but I don't really uh, have anything on it. That particular well, song. Now, maybe the I'm thinking we're loaded with things, but uh, the Magical Mystery Tour song. You mean the, the entire album rather than the one song? Right. Well, that's right. There's, like I said, like this, this, the best way to go is by right. MDC. Right. I mean, it doesn't say have a sunny trip or have a friendly trip. It says have the best way to go. That's a clue, that, but I'm not sure about the song itself. Ah, okay. Uh, the number nine. Uh, Lennon was fascinated by the number nine. Of course, you have Dream number nine. You have Revolution uh, number nine. He was uh, born... The one uh, after 909. The one after 909. Uh, what, what was it about the number nine w- w- with Lennon? Um, and was it Yoko that turned him on to numerology, or was he always fascinated with it? Well, he always was fascinated with numerology. I mean, it would be nice. A lot of people try to point that aspect of John's life um, towards Yoko Ono, but I don't see it that way in as much as, like, even a picture of John Lennon um, he used on the walls and bridges. As a young boy, he was, like, 12 years old, and he drew the sketch, and there's this guy, this, this you know, himself supposedly a, you know, playing soccer with a number nine on his back. I mean, the fact that he was born on October 9th, um, it started from the very beginning, the number nine. And I have actually dedicated a chapter to my, in my book to the number nine and the significance of the number nine to John Lennon. And like I say, that uh, ultimately became the date of his death, which was uh, Tuesday, uh, December 9th, um, because, of course, in the United States it was Monday the 8th, but in England it was five hours ahead or uh, stupid bloody Tuesday, number nine, number nine. 
your uh, contention of, is is that uh, he made a uh, a deal with the devil, and I was uh, mentioning to Gary in, in a previous hour when you when you look at the the evolution of the Beatles, their sound, uh, the the um, their their songwriting abilities. Uh, between 1962, when they were uh, really sort of getting their chops in, in, in Hamburg, uh, to, let's say, Rubber Soul in 65 or Revolver in 66, in which they were light years ahead of anyone else. Um, it, it almost sounds like that sort of that Robert Johnson scenario, Gary, you and I have talked about, where uh, Johnson, by all accounts, was not a very accomplished guitar player. He went away. Uh, and a few months later uh, returned and was this musical genius, and, and that's, I guess, how people started to think he must have made the deal with the devil. Um, is that, uh, Joseph, the way you think it happened with, well, with mean, Lennon? Well, the thing is, I just never understood the Beatles and how they could be so popular so quickly. Now, I loved the Rolling Stones, and I enjoyed Led Zeppelin, but they weren't the Beatles to me. You know, I, I'm, like I said, I can't explain what the fascination with me and my life with the Beatles. And like, I'm not any different than millions of other fans. I understand that. But what I couldn't come to grips with, and I was interested how I'm really interested in what Gary has to say, like with the fact that, you know, that George Martin was there at the right time and Brian Epstein was there at the right time. But what I can't understand is, you know, in 1964, they appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, and we Americans, most of us, first learn of the Beatles or see of the Beatles in 1964. Now, granted, they had been together for a while before that, but then within a few short months later, let's just say, I believe it was in June of 64, they went to Australia. And now, they, a lot of people will um, you know, say that the Beatles' success was a, a really good marketing program, and they had all these things working for them. But I can't explain how, and if you go on like YouTube, any of the listeners can go on YouTube and take a look at the Beatles' first trip to Australia. Now, they, they had, maybe they had maybe one, maybe two. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say maybe three hits over there. When they landed, these guys, these Beatles are out on their hotel balcony, and there's 400,000 fans screaming in the streets just to get a glimpse of these guys. Mass hysteria. Well, I can't, how can you explain that? It's incredible. Where did that power come from so quickly? That's Two a, months earlier, they probably never even heard of the Beatles. That's an excellent point. Uh, Gary, any thoughts on that? Was it just great marketing? Well, I think it's great marketing. I think that they lost millions because Brian Epstein really didn't know anything about licensing Beatle pictures on lunchboxes and everything else that came over. So he learned as he went. But if you listen to their first demo tape, as we talked about in the first hour, it was pretty bad. I mean, they did the Sheik of Araby. I remember that, and Ain't She Sweet. And, I mean, it was outdated. It had nothing to do with anything. And it was just, you know, you might call it fortunate that George Martin heard it and brought him to Abbey Road Studios. And uh, I think they took to the studio like ducks to water. I think that uh, when they gave up the touring after the nightmare in, in the Philippines and they came back and they decided that it was not fun to be Beatles and not fun to go perform, that they would dedicate themselves into the studio and that they would make these new sounds. And they had instruments like Mellotrons, and they had a, a producer and an engineer like Jeff Emmerich who were able to get every creative source out of them and to bring in orchestration. But, you know, the Beatles were listening. I mean, they were brought up on the real buildings. They were brought up on great songwriting. 
if you listen to Carole King, Jerry Coffin, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, all those artists that the Beatles loved, they wanted to be songwriters for everybody. And if you remember, they wrote World Without Love, or Paul wrote World Without Love for Peter and Gordon, and they had songs written for uh, the Dakotas. And, and so they wanted to be great songwriters. So they developed a style, much like a, a pop artist in the 60s. But what got it was the long hair look, uh, the neat Pierre Cardin suits, and the marketing package that Epstein just sort of blundered into and made it work. But he was right. They had to be more professional, and they had to look good. And when American mothers saw them, then, you know, those were guys that they wouldn't mind their daughters going out with because their songs were, I want to hold your hand. But when you saw the Rolling Stones, you knew the Rolling Stones would never be interested in just holding your daughter's hand. So the Beatles had this wholesome image. And, of course, on the inside, they were the Rolling Stones, weren't they? I think it it, uh, it it didn't hurt also the timing that they would uh, come, uh, and certainly in America, break onto the scene mm-hmm. when the United States was still in deep, deep mourning uh, over the assassination exactly. of JFK. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, people had a reason to be happy and excited again. And if you think about it, too, is after Buddy Holly's plane crash, American music was very stale. It was very pop, but it was dominated by artists like Fabian. And uh, the Beatles brought a rawness to it. And, you know, the British invasion, when they came over, the Beatles and the Stones, you couldn't get black artists played on white radio stations in the United States. Nobody knew who Howlin' Wolf was. When uh, the Stones played on the Ed Sullivan Show and they did Little Red Rooster, everyone thought the Rolling Stones had written Little Red Rooster. And, of course, the Beatles, you know, they did uh, some Motown cuts. And they did some, I mean, they loved uh, James Jamerson from Motown. I know McCartney loved his bass playing, but, you know, they introduced uh, a lot of black artists, but the music had British accents, and uh, they were able to discover that in the United States to, uh, to give these artists their, their due that they had so richly deserved. But, you know, they, they filled a void, both in the death of popular music with Holly, where it was a little rebellious, and Elvis being in the Army, and Little Richard giving it up, and, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis destroying his career to the idea that they brought something new. And there was a sense of grief. John Kennedy was dead, and you know we were mourning, and this was something that we could catch up and feel good about. Still, so Maybe it was just the perfect opportune time. Still, uh, with all of that, uh, Gary, uh, I have to agree with Joseph, uh, and I, I'm a big Beatle fan and, and certainly a big Lennon fan. Uh, to me, I look at the transformation between the Beatles in 62 and, say, 65, it's, it's like how how do you explain that? Uh, I yeah, can't. Four hundred thousand people. It's screaming in the streets, and that's just like one country. This was worldwide. It was a worldwide thing. Mass- it's interesting that Gary points out that these these interesting techniques that they used, and and um, that was pretty much near the end. I mean, of Beatles touring. So it wasn't even like they were parlaying that newfound skills into you know into uh, whipping fans into mass hysteria. That happened almost simultaneously with the release of their first singles. All right, Joseph, uh, hang in there. Gary, stay with us. We'll be back. More of the Lennon Prophecy on the other side. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I'm sick and tired of hearing In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. 
Joseph Nyasgoda, the author of The Lenin Prophecy, a new examination of the death clues of the Beatles, is with us, along with rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson, who author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Legends, or Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, as we uh, uh, note the, uh, the 29th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon. Uh, Joseph, uh, death clues in um, uh, the, uh, the song Tomorrow Never Knows, which I believe comes from uh, off the Revolver album, does it not? Right, and, and interesting, it was originally tar- titled Mark One. Yes, which is interesting, Mark One, as in Mark David Chapman. Um, now, Revolver, someone told me that, uh, numerologically speaking, the Revolver, uh, and of course it was a thirty-eight that uh, Chapman used, but the name Revolver, numerologically, uh, is the same as Mark David Chapman, the shooter. Have you worked out those out those no, numbers? No, I haven't. Re- I haven't done. I haven't heard that one before. No. Uh, well, it might be worth. Uh, it ch- might be worth checking into, into that Absolutely. to see if it actually does happen uh, that way. Right. Now, going back a, a few years to uh, the Beatles' Yesterday and Today uh, album, and of course. Uh, the the first issue of that album was a rather graphic uh, picture of the Beatles uh, wearing these butchers aprons and these dismembered dolls all over the place. I don't know who, <laughs> who it was that okayed that uh, that cover, uh, and, if, and then it was uh, pulled and reissued with something a little more palatable. But um, what does that what does that say to you? The, the where, where are the clues there? Uh, well, one of the one of the things is is that that con- that was a very controversial. Um, album cover, which really didn't, um, like I say, didn't it? It um, it was released in 1966, and it was pulled almost immediately when copies did manage to make their way out, and people saw it and were so appalled by it. And one of the things is that that was one of the things too that kind of made me look in the direction or opened up that door for me about Satanism, because um, you know people will interpret that album the way they will and the Beatles commented on it themselves, but it's a, it is a form of infanticide, one of the highest forms, and this isn't me, this is just, like I say, I didn't create these facts, these are just facts that I researched in books and what's written, what's already out there in the public domain, that Satanism, a form of, one of the highest forms of Satanism is, is the dismembering of babies or sacrificing of virgin babies, and that is a perfect depiction of that. Is it um, not possible, though, uh, Joseph, that, that rather than Lenin himself having made a deal with the devil, uh, that the, the secret society, let's say, that got behind the Beatles and unleashed them onto America almost as a, uh, as a psychological warfare experiment, uh, there are some who theorize that the Beatles were really a creation of the Tavist- Tavistock Institute, and uh, that uh, uh, George Martin was an asset of uh, MI5 or MI6 and was uh, utilizing some supercomputer from Bletchley Park to sort of infuse this hypnotic uh, rhythm uh, and effects into the Beatles' music to sort of turn America on to the, to the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing as a, as a distraction. Um, is it not possible that th- that they were the Satanists here, and they were the ones calling the shots, rather than uh, simply a case of, of Lenin on his own having made a deal with the devil? Well, you know, that may, like I said, anything is, any, like Gary says, too, anything is possible. But the, the fact is, is that, um, it, again, 
I didn't research this book for any other reason than my own desires to come to understanding or come to grips with what I saw or what I perceived as a pact with the devil that John Leonard entered into. I mean, these clues, if not for the clues, that may be something you know, worth looking into, or there's probably ten books rolled into that one subject matter alone. Right. But in my particular book, um, I have to go by these clues that keep resurfacing in my life when I keep looking at these things, and I, I can't... I can't explain. It's inexplicable, how, you know, what these clues are all about, and they're they're undeniable. I mean, maybe one you could chalk up to coincidence or two, but I don't buy coincidence and synchronicity any longer. There's just too many of them, and when you link them together, it points a definitive picture. Uh, you you point out in the book that uh, Manson, um, who was uh, obviously a convicted murderer, uh, believed that Lenin's um, music, in particular, Revolution Number no. Nine from the White Album, was a direct reference to the Holy Bible's Revelations Nine. Right well, now, I don't have the Bible example. in front of me, but what what does Revelations Nine say that might lead you to believe that he made a pact with the devil? Well, it's interesting that with the with the whole Charlie Manson thing. These this Beatle music inspired and motivated people in many different directions, and Charles Manson, um, you know, for whatever reason sense that there was something there more than just music with the Beatles, something more than music. And when he looked at this Revolution 9, of course, number 9, um, a lot of fans, people that might not be fans, that's one of the things that started the whole Paul McCartney death clues. That particular song um, starts with um, an engineer saying number 9, number 9, number 9, repeatedly at the beginning of the song and throughout the song it resurfaces. And that, when played backwards, phonetically sounds like, turn me on dead man, turn me on dead man. Now, Manson was aware of that. And what he did was he took, um, and again, I'm not, you know, professing, I understand the mind of Charles Manson. I'm just going by what he's quoted as saying and what he explained as to what his interpretation of that song was. And it is very complex subject, looking at the mind of a murderer like Manson. But Manson looked at revolution number nine and went to the bible revelations nine and in the bible revelations nine it's a, it's very it's a very interesting um chapter of the bible whereas it seems to almost describe the beatles coming uh, into this world it's i can't explain it myself I, I don't know if there is an explanation it's like trying to define magic whereas they manson in, interpreted the verbiage from the Bible is being describing the Beatles, where they talk about these locusts that come upon the earth, and they have faces of men and hair of women. Well, that is a very unique description for uh, for the Beatles at the time. Sure. Faces of men and hair of women with breastplates of metal describing the guitars. It's very odd. I just pulled up uh, Revelations uh, 9 here on the computer, and I'm just trying to follow along. Another clue, uh, sound like thundering horses and chariots rushing into battle. Uh, right, well, the, the thing is, um, if you, re- like I said, it's, it's difficult to explain over the phone or in a, you know, without actually looking at the passage, but it does say about breastplates of metal where it kind of describes the guitar, and it, the sound they made was like a thousand chariots moving off into battle, which could very well describe the Beatles' music and the concerts and the screaming, like a thousand chariots moving off into battle. Indeed. Let's uh, grab a call here. Michael is in Toronto. Michael, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Joseph Nyasgoda and Gary Patterson. 
Yes, uh, good evening to all of you, I guess. Uh, uh, I guess my question really is, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, what is the connection with the Beatles and the Maharishi? It's obvious to me that uh, uh, George Harrison uh, became religious after that, you know, Hare Krishna and John Lennon. Uh, we always say had all these interesting and weird ideas when he wrote, uh, you know, his songs. Well, uh, basically all the time, but basically after the encounter with the Maharishi. All right, uh, thank you for that, Michael Joseph. Uh, th- any connection with uh, the Maharishi's influence on on Lennon and um, well, what John you're talking Lennon, about? Like he said, he was a well-read individual and he was constantly he seemed to be constantly searching for something in his life he seemed he was never quite satisfied with where he was in life and he constantly looked for something i interpret that as someone who's very troubled who's got a great weight they're carrying on them and looking for possible solace or looking for a means or a way of possibly relieving the problem in their life. And that's maybe what the Maharishi was to John. Maybe it was an opportunity, or he viewed it as an opportunity to get out of this quote-unquote pact that he had entered into. Uh, Gary, uh, to your knowledge, did Lenin ever dabble in the uh, in the Church of Satan, or did he have, did he read uh, the Aleister Crowley or any of that? Well, let's go back to 1966, because in that year, Kenneth Anger, who was an occult filmmaker, goes to England and Anger was very impressed with the power the Rolling Stones had over audiences. And it was almost like a magic thing. So he comes over with a concept for a film, Invocation of My Demon Brother, in which Mick Jagger actually performs some music, and uh, Mick's brother actually performs the role of Satan in the movie. And then, of course, he did uh, Lucifer Rising with Led Zeppelin, where Paige performed. But he would come over and he'd tell the stories of uh, Crowley, and it was almost like in the Order of the Golden Dawn, where they were fighting out these magical battles between... Uh, and, you know, you had... Yates was a member of the, of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And uh, rock bands got into it. And that's probably one of the reasons you see Aleister Crowley's picture on the Sgt. Pepper's cover on the upper left side. I guess you would say the left-hand path versus the right-hand path. But the idea of the occult, uh, the idea of hidden knowledge, the idea of uh, Far Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism, whatever. It seemed like this was an entire generation adrift that was looking for answers, and the Maharishi provided some of that. But when they went to the camps and they studied, they realized that it was a sham, because if you remember the song Dear Prudence, uh, the Maharishi was trying to put the make on Mia Farah's sister. So Prudence was a song which you come out to play, and then Lennon bitterly, you know, it seems like another door shut. And maybe like catching the Rye, maybe Jill agree with this. Maybe Lennon was a lot like Holden Caulfield because everybody he trusted in turned out to be a phony. And when he comes home, he writes the song Sexy Sadie, which was a, a take on the Maharishi. He made a fool of everyone. So it wasn't only the Beatles. It was the Beach Boys. It was the Rolling Stones. Everybody was trying to get in this, this new vibe of finding consciousness and, uh, you know, tr- searching for new answers. So Lennon, you know, he dabbled not in Satanism. I mean, I've not seen anything. The people I know who knew John, I know Cynthia Lennon. I've met Cynthia. I know Bill Harry. I've never heard any of that. But, I mean, he was very despondent. And, you know, when his mother died when he was 17, 
I mean, he went through some terrible losses, and I think a lot of times when people go through losses they don't understand, they reach out, they blame anything that happened. Well, That's one of the stages of grief, and I think that might have been his anti-Christian period there. Interesting, but you mentioned... About the you men- it's interesting, you mentioned um, he was disappointed by so many people and found them out to be phonies, and of course that was apparently what Chapman thought of Lenin uh, near the end, that he was the phony. I am the walrus, of course, the walrus in Alice in Wonderland is a bit of a trickster and a phony himself, so there is some other foreshadowing that Joseph is talking about, I suppose. Listen, we'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Joseph Nyasgoda, Gary Patterson, talking about the life and death of John Lennon. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Joseph Nyesgoat is the author of The Lennon Prophecy, A New Examination of the Death Clues of the Beatles. Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator, author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Joseph, how are Beatle fans uh, reacting to, uh, to your book? Are they uh, um, angry? Well, there is, uh, there is that element that people are kind of um, confused. It's, it's difficult for people to look back at someone like John Lennon when, in fact, when you do look back, you get, you know, you look at all the good things and the wonderful things and the music and the memories that it created. And so it is a very difficult subject. But the thing is, this book was written not as an attack on an icon or attack on John Lennon. It was just someone, myself, trying to understand or come to grips with what the Beatles were and what happened to John Lennon and why did he die such a violent death. That's what this is. And people... Honestly, 85% of the people that contact me through my websites and through, um, through Facebook um, are supportive in, in, to a certain degree and can offer up insights that they themselves have experienced or things that they've been troubled with by, um, you know, troubled with in understanding what exactly were the Beatles. Lennon's um, uh, final album, Double Fantasy, and the... Um the, the, the big single, just like starting over. You, you, you point to some interesting clues in the, uh, the video uh, that came out of that song. And uh, they uh, involved the works of, of James Joyce. Both you and Gary have indicated that he was very well read and that he was into James Joyce. But why, uh, why is uh, James Joyce's book, Finnegan's Wake, featured so prominently uh, in, the, in the video? And what does that, uh, or how does that um, uh, lead to your suspicion that he made a pact with the devil? Well, I just never understood why. Now, nothing, ha- nothing is by happenstance. I mean, anyone who's in marketing or in the film industry um, will put these prominent props. They're meant to be, and there's a good reason for them. And now, with Finnegan's Wake, I never understood what the connection was, other than it was a book that John Lennon read. But it came, um, the Finnegan's Wake resurfaced a number of times, and like that starting over video is an example. And then when you go into there, there are just some, like people will call it, oh, just interpretation, loose interpretation, um, uh, uh, imagination. But there's some things that are written in there that really are odd. Like, for example, in Finnegan's Wake, in James Joyce, one of the lines is, he had to die it, the Beatle, he did it self. It's just very odd that those things 
were incorporated into Finnegan's Wake. He had to dye it the Beatle. He, he did, did it, it himself. Yeah. It's odd. It is odd. Um, I don't know, and Gary. That's just you... one of many that are in the in Finnegan's Wake. Oh, can you share some others? Um, like, um, let me think about the the the. He talks about John um, and the butcher cover. He mentions the butcher cover in uh, in Finnegan's Wake. I don't mean to be cryptic or evasive, but it's so complicated. You'd have to really read and see what I have written in the book. Uh, Mark David Chapman. Um, many um, believe that um, you know he was just a a, a mentally ill, uh, deranged uh, gunman. I um, I spoke with uh, Chip Coffee, who is a, um, a a psychic, who actually is friends with a family in uh, that lived in Decatur, uh, outside Atlanta, in Georgia, that that had befriended Mark David Chapman in the early seventies when his, when he was a YMCA camp counselor and their young daughter. Uh, just loved Mark David Chapman. They would have him over to the house all the time. And uh, this family revealed to Chip Coffey that, uh, unbeknownst to Mark David Chapman, their house uh, was um, uh, undergoing some sort of, I don't know, uh, it was more than a haunting, um, almost some sort of a demonic possession. They never revealed that to Mark David Chapman, although on the night of his arrest, Mark David Chapman told police that uh, he had encountered two demons at this home, Indicator, and he named them by name and then told the police they had told him to shoot John Lennon. Um, well, the thing is with this, the murder of John Lennon, you know, it's nice to wrap it up in a package with a bow on it and say, oh, it was just a senseless murder by a deranged fan in pursuit of Lennon's fame and fortune, you know, and the tension. But, you know, I just don't buy that. Now, if you have religion in your life, and you may, many of the listeners do, I myself am Catholic, and the Catholic Church actually has what are called, um, you know, um, um, procedures or things for pulling or extracting demons from humans. Now, you might not believe it or want to believe it, but Mark Chapman did. Mark David Chapman believed he was possessed by demons, and in fact, it's well documented that as he stood, um, and I don't even like to mention his name because Beatle fans are so offended by him, they don't want to give him any attention. And in fact, they actually refer to him as the man who shall remain nameless. And I mean, it took a lot of courage for me to even include him in the book because I knew that I would, you know, there would be a great deal of um, negativity generated by it, but was, it was such an important aspect of what happened. When Chapman was in the doorway, he heard these voices, these demonic voices saying, do it, do it, do it, repeating that he had to do this. And then whether you believe in, um, you know, whether you believe in religion or not, Chapman believed that he had demons in him. There are reports that, uh, that uh, in fact, I think he told People magazine he underwent a spontaneous uh, exorcism while in, in prison and uh, and described these, uh, I think he mentioned two demons that actually came out of his mouth. Um, That's the way he described it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Let's uh, pick it up in uh, Indiana and say hello to, uh, is it Dornan? Dorman, like Norman. I'm sorry, Dorman. Welcome to the Conspiracy yeah. Show. I was interested in this numerology that he, he was fascinated by in the number nine. 
I'm going by the English date that he died. The absolute number of that is three. The date he was born, the absolute number of that is six. And the days between the time he was born and the time he died, including the leap years, is one thousand or is fourteen thousand six hundred and seventy days. And the absolute number of that was nine. Yeah. Was well, numerology is, and I say you can say it's coincidence, or a lot of people might say to a caller like you that, oh, that's just you, you know, manipulating numbers, but. I don't know. It seems to me that there's a lot more than to meet the eye. It's a very complex subject, but yeah, you add these numbers up, and it's very odd the way things seem to work out. Thank you for that, Dorman. Any connection with uh, uh, all of these nines? I mean, a nine is an inverted six, and of course, you know, nine 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 or six six six, the the mark of the beast. Well, in that very section of the Bible, The Mark of the Beast, this now isn't in my book. It's not on my website. It's uh, uh, one of the many people that have reached out to me with their concerns and their problems pointed out that if you look within the context of those chapters in the Bible, um, you will see where, and it's very odd, because like I say with numerology, it talks about one who shall be given limitless power shall be given limitless power and will speak with great blasphemies against the Lord will come to an end in 40 and 2 months which is exactly how long John Lennon lived 40 years and 2 months and that's directly I again this isn't me this is just people coming forward saying these are things that have bothered them that they have seen and it is very odd that In the passage where they talk about the mark of the devil, 666, it also mentions about this 40 and 2 months. I invite everybody to take a look for themselves, and like I say, um, form your own conclusion. And the great blasphemy, of course, is is John Lennon's uh, pronouncement that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus, presumably. That was one of them. You know, we're more popular than Jesus. People don't, like I say, if you look at these things, what's interesting is that a lot of the research that went into the Lennon prophecy went back in time and researched those quotes and those articles that were written about the Beatles. People couldn't understand what the Beatles were all about. And that's one of the things, like with John Lennon and the the timing of this whole thing, that if you go back in time and look at the actual things that were written, um, it, it, it wasn't as sunny and pleasant as, you know, as you would lead to believe looking back now. Do you mean in terms of the anger that was directed towards the Beatles uh, after that statement? Yeah, well, that was that's exactly right. Like with he, they don't, people don't like to hear the word blasphemy, but I mean, again and again in his song, he says we're more popular than Jesus. He says, um, he says there ain't no Jesus going to come from the sky. I don't believe in Jesus. This isn't a matter of interpretation. When someone says there ain't no Jesus going to come from the sky, to deny God's existence is a form of blasphemy. And that's, like I say, the, in the purest definition of the word. Gary, it why did anger a great deal of people, and why wouldn't it? Just like that butcher cover angered people. It's you know, interesting, say, though, that... Oh, that's just the Beatles having fun. Some people, if you go back in time and look at that, look at the news articles that were written, the word infanticide is, is written again and again. This is back in 66. They were mentioning the word infanticide. 
It's not like we're going back in time and rewriting history and reinterpreting it. This is what was said back then. It's interesting. You know, that stuff happens today. You know, Madonna does some very controversial things, uh, has been uh, accused of being blasphemous. Uh, and, uh, of course, it only uh, propels her uh, you know, career further, given the times that we live in. But, you know, 45 years ago, uh, a much more innocent time, um, uh, yet those sorts of things um, didn't seem to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to railroad their career, Gary. Why is it that, uh, d- you know, despite the, the Yesterday and Today uh, album cover and, uh, and, and, and Lennon's pronouncements, I mean, there were people, you know, they were holding, uh, you know, Burn a Beetle album uh, 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 party, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem to really hurt their, their career. Why is that? I think that rock and roll's always been outrage, you know? I mean, when Elvis swiveled his hips and, uh, you know, could only be filmed from the, from the chest up, rock and roll's about rebellion. And teenagers didn't want to live the same life as their parents. I mean, they were too materialistic. This is a generation that was going into communes and into the counterculture. So, I mean, they did not, they looked at maybe some of the religious dogma at the time period as maybe their mother or father grounded them. And, uh, I mean, what did they know about music? And and it did anger a lot of people. It angered a lot of youth groups. But I, I know that in the concerts in the South, when they would have uh, youth meetings, uh, it also seemed to be that they never had to worry about selling out for a Beatles concert. They were always sold out. But it wasn't fun to perform, and that's why they went to the studio. When they played in Memphis, uh, someone threw firecrackers on the stage, and they looked at each other to see who was shot. And when you when you ask the question about the number nine before Yoko, well, John had received a, a note saying he was going to be murdered. I think it was in France. He would be shot on stage at nine o'clock, and that's what terrified John because he knew about the number nine. Now I've got one question. I've been I've been listening, but Joe, what do you think about the uh, John Lennon born again stage in '77, where he wrote Oral Roberts a letter asking if Jesus could still love him? and that he had watched the film Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he even took Yoko and Sean to a, to a church and even started writing some religious music. And then he was talked out of his belief by those close to him because they felt he was sort of threatened into uh, leaving some of the more comfortable areas that they could use as a little control. But what do you think about that? I, I know he even called the PT, well, when PTL was Pat Robertson's thing, even made a donation to Oral Roberts University. Well, I think that John Lennon, like I said, was in, he obviously was troubled throughout his life with this, let's just, for the sake of discussion, say that he had a pact. And he was troubled with this, and he would look to try to find if there was a way out. It's not uncommon, and again, these are set patterns that are written and documented throughout history of what happens to these people that entered into these pacts. It's a set pattern. And near the end, they become very aware of their allotted time running out. And now, John Lennon, and you know the, 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 the personality that would, was John Lennon. I never met him. You never met him. But you know from those people that were close to him, he, was, he had an, uh, an acidity about him. And if he didn't get the answer he wanted, he would be greatly frustrated. And I think he did turn to theology in the hopes that maybe there was an opportunity to turn things around for himself. All right, uh, Joseph, Gary, uh, stay with us. Take a final time out, come back, and uh, a few questions remain before we wrap things up as we commemorate the 29th anniversary this coming Tuesday of the death and murder of John Lennon. Did he make a pact with the devil? Was Mark David Chapman sent 
to collect the bill. Don't go away. Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Log on to the website richardserrett.com, and there, if you scroll down the left-hand side, you'll see our opinion poll. We change it up every week. It's called Your Call. And this week's question, who killed John Lennon? Here are the results thus far. 40% of you are saying Mark David Chapman acted alone. 40% say Mark David Chapman was a mind-controlled patsy. 13.3% say Mark David Chapman was possessed by demons. And 6.7% of you say Dakota Dorman and CIA asset Jose Perdomo uh, was the actual uh, killer. Uh, Just a few moments remain with uh, my guest, Joseph Nyasgado, the the, uh, author of The Lennon Prophecy, and R. Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator. And uh, let's go back to the phones here quickly and our good friend Nelson Thal on the line. Nelson, welcome. Great, great. Lovely hearing you on again, Richard. Uh, Sunday night is real special and updating because you're on the air. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I just wanted a great show about Lennon. You know, one thing I wanted to throw out there was this. Ronnie Hawkins, an old friend of mine, had John Lennon stay at his house in the 60s. And Ronnie told me not long ago, that when Lenin showed up, he was a colonel in the intelligence agencies, and they set up a phone system at his place in Toronto that rivaled the showing up of the Queen. So he had a rank of about colonel in the intelligence service. Lenin did. Yeah, and his code name was Walrus. (laughs) What else? Like Queen Melusina is Hillary's. Now, when you say intelli- U.S. intelligence or British intelligence? No, British intelligence. British intelligence. He was recruited by MI6? He was probably recruited by MI... Neither military intelligence, but psychological. Tavistock. And this- MI5 and 6 is different from Tavistock. Right, so right, right. he was right. recruited from and worked by Tavistock. And what do you make of that, Nelson? Are you surprised by that? No, I think he's an agent and an operative who went astray and started to think about how he was being abu- how he was being used in an abusive way towards towards uh, psychological conditioning and the use of suggestive music and and uh, what was going on around him went went to his consciousness and he decided to turn on them and eventually he said he was going to run for governor. And uh, you know as well as I do that we've, you can even today go and study the two opium wars, the British opium wars in China, and Lenin was part of a, a software opium project, mind control, suggestive music, change the paradigm shift of the way people think, the counter-revolution, and it, 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 started, it started to go to his head, you know, it started, it's not his head, but his consciousness. He felt, he felt like he realized he was being used to betray human beings, and he didn't want to do that anymore. And I guess that old saw that you can't, uh, you can't quit, 
quit the intelligence game. Uh, so when he was no longer of use to them, they took him out. Is that the idea? Yeah, and by the way, Sherman Skolnick always pointed something out that no one else pointed out, and that was that his wife was heavily involved in a major family that was involved in the intelligence agency within Japan. High level. Always interesting insights, uh, Nelson, and uh, we can listen to Nelson on cloakanddagger.ca. Nelson, thank you. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks a lot, and look forward to seeing you again soon, Richard. Wonderful. Keep up the great work. All right. Jo- Joseph uh, Goda, I have another one for you, and I don't know if um, uh, you've, you, t- you touched on this. I don't believe so, but I um, uh, know a gentleman down in uh, Windsor, Ontario, who wrote a book. His name is uh, Dan Alice. Interesting book, and uh, talks about some of the, uh, the coincidences around Lennon's life and death. And one of them is uh, on the White Album. Uh, the, the first track on the White Album, uh, and Gary, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe it's back in the USSR. And, of course, it, right. it begins, fl- flew in from... Or flew into Miami Beach. So flash ahead to 1980, and of course uh, we go back to that Monday night football game in the Orange Bowl when most of us heard about Lennon's death via Howard Cosell's announcement at the Orange Bowl. The last track on the White Album, and of course this is all, again, this is coming to me from, from uh, Dan Alice, uh, the last track on the uh, album is Revolution Number no. 9, and it's kind of a that sound collage, and at the end of the, uh, the, of the song, as it's fading out, you hear what sounds like, I believe it's a, a football or a soccer crowd, and they're chanting, block that kick, block that kick, which is interesting because uh, as Cosell is announcing Lennon's death, the New England Patriots are lining up to either kick a field goal or a convert, and... The Orange Bowl, of course, filled with Miami Dolphin fans, erupts in a chorus, block that kick, block that kick. What do you make of that? Well, I'll tell you, the ironies of ironies is that these things can't be chalked up to coincidence. I mean, the fact that, of all things for John Lennon, this is when his last weekend he was out in California, he appeared on Monday Night Football with Howard Cosell. Very odd in that years later, Howard Cosell would be the one to announce to the world of the of the murder of John Lennon. Right. I I I just find that very foretelling that John that John did that. And one of the things, like you mentioned about the White Album, is I would invite all the listeners to look at, as I did, and as many have, like Gary have done, look at the lyrics to find the answers. It, it, what happened? Now, I'd like to just one real quickly mentioned to Gary asked me about Lennon's period where I said that he didn't his his uh, reborn period where he didn't get the answers he wanted. It's interesting that this show started with you playing the song I'm scared I'm scared and he Lennon gives you an answer to that question. You don't have to suffer. It is what it is. No bell, book or candle can get you out of this. Oh no. So he tells us he did look and there's no bell, book or candle that's going to get you out of this. And one other lyric that I wanted to just bring up because before we run out of time is, and it's really odd that this song was written just, you know, probably weeks before John Lennon was murdered, and it wasn't released till 20 years after. It's a demo tape that he did, and it said, well, I've tried so hard to stay alive, but the angel of destruction keeps on hounding me around. Oh, no. So this is, uh, and he asked, please, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. It's such a far cry from what he was doing 
in the 60s and the 70s for him to write a song like that. And the name of the song is um, Help Me to Help Myself. I don't think that's a matter of interpretation on my part. Fascinating, and as we uh, we 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 um, end the show, uh, Joseph, I'm just looking at uh, again another clue that you point out, and it's the back cover of the '67 Sgt. Pepper album. John appears behind the song lyrics, and you take a, a closer look. The words "lose their soul" runs directly across his belt line, perfectly centered. That's very just... perfectly centered. And I would invite all the listeners, please. Just, if you have a chance, take a look at the LennonProphecy.com, and I have, it's, it's, a, it's my website, and there's a, uh, a section on clues where you might be able to look at these things firsthand to see what, uh, what it is we were talking about tonight. And, of course, I would invite you to um, maybe possibly purchase the Lennon Prophecy. It's a very interesting read. It's a good story. Joseph Nyasgoda, thank you so much for this. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. All right. Gary, always a pleasure. Thank you for uh, your uh, being so generous with your time, and we'll talk again soon down the road. We will. It's been very interesting. So, uh, Joe, I'll, I'll read your book. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Gary. I, I really appreciate your knowledge and respect your uh, your abilities in uh, in writing. You've done a very nice job yourself. Thank you for well, thank being you. a good reference for me. <laughs> thank you both, gentlemen, and uh, thank you to uh, Dan Allison back next week talking teleportation and time travel. Hope you'll be with me in the meantime. Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.